Today's episode is a panel discussion I moderated about generative AI, such as ChatGPT, and all of the implications for startup investors and founders around the world. It was a great conversation with some of the leading minds in the world of AI today. My co-host for the panel was Louis Lowe, a Silicon Valley lawyer with Foley and Laudner. It was a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. And welcome to the second in our series of live stream panel discussions for investors and startup founders. And joining me as co-host this morning is Louis Lowe. Hey, Louis. Good morning, Brett. Thanks for putting this together as, as always. I like the little jingle. Uh, yeah. For everyone who doesn't know, I'm Louis Lowe. I'm a startup lawyer uh, here in Palo Alto, a few uh, stone's throws from Stanford University. And uh, in, my mission in life is to help founders and investors uh, form new businesses, finance them, scale them for growth, and have a great outcome. Nice. So, Louis, it's hard to believe, but it was only six months ago that most of us had never heard of ChatGPT before. Um, and then in January, they had 100 million users. Um, so it really kind of more than anything I've ever experienced in my Silicon Valley career kind of seemed to come out of nowhere and all of a sudden uh, appears to be changing everything. Um, and, you know, one of the main things that we need to know, Louis, is will ChatGPT replace lawyers? Um, it's certainly going to replace uh, many things that we do, and I think it's going to increase the accuracy of what we do, the efficiency of what we do. Uh, and I think it makes us better. So I'm certainly uh, out there competing in the marketplace as somebody who uses more uh, technology tools than, than less. Nice. So we've got a terrific uh, panel of experts joining us this morning. Um, and uh, Ben, hey. Hey, thanks for having me today. You bet. Give us the brief background on yourself. Um, sure. So Benjamin Levy, co-founder and general partner at Bootstrap Labs, an early stage venture capital firm uh, focused on applied AI technology since actually the first seven years. So probably a bit before everyone else out there. Um, we've been investing in, in deep technology for much longer than that, but really focused on applied AI for the last um, seven years. Um, future of work, mobility, health, digital infrastructure, financial infrastructure, and energy and climate. Um, so really looking forward to this conversation here as we've seen things evolved uh, since the early days to where we are today. And Walter, what do we need to know about you? Uh, well, my background is in AI, like most people in the panel, I think. And uh, I did my PhD on uh, computational semiotics. That's the storytelling abilities of uh, language models. I've been an entrepreneur for a very long time together with my wife. We uh, we're involved in four IPOs, two in America and two in Europe. And I'm now enjoying the summer of AI in the beautiful campus of Stanford for my fifth year. And, um, and I've recently been uh, be become the curator of the new TED event, which is called TED AI, which will be for the first time October 17. And my wife is the producer. She's the boss, actually. The boss. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So it'd be nice to yeah. them if you want to be speaking yeah. over there. <laughs> and uh, Dupanwata, how are you? Hi, um, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Brett. Um, so I'm joining in from Washington, D.C. I'm the CEO and, and co-founder of Sorcero. Uh, we are a leading medical analytics platform for life sciences products. Um, and our customers use us to gain more insights into how their products are performing once it's in market and then drive better decisions around both market retention and expansion. At the end of the day, we live because patients can't wait to make sure that they get the right treatment at the right time. And of course, we use AI to accelerate the decision-making and really augment our users. And that's our philosophy to using any cognitive technology. Alex, what are you all about? Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. I'm Alex Babin, CEO and co-founder of Zero Systems, uh, joining from uh, not so sunny Campbell, California. It's not so sunny here, uh, but um, uh, Zero is orchestrating an operating system to build, run, and deploy AI generative AI applications for uh, large enterprises. And we focus on knowledge workers like lawyers, accountants, consultants, uh, financial specialists, and so on and so forth. Because we believe that 
Uh, as we're saying, AI will not replace people. It will replace people who are not using AI. And uh, people should be focusing on doing what they're good at and what they like doing at the same time. And everything else should be delegated to AI. So that's, that's what we do. Excellent. Ahmed. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. All right, my name is Ahmed Reza. I am the founder and CEO of Yobi. I've uh, been in the AI space for a while, but not as decorated as some of the other uh, wonderful folks on this call. Uh, we're working on uh, building synthetic agents, um, basically started imagining what the future of business communications might look like uh, a few years ago after Transformers are out and you know attention's all you need. So the AI geeks got to work. Um, it was really hard to explain to people what we did, but Thanks to ChatGPT, now everybody's like come, not breaking down our doors for synthetic agents and customer service sales and marketing. And uh, Suman, can you hear us? Not yet. Well, let me tell you who Suman is, uh, Brett. He, uh, like uh, Ben, uh, is an investor who's solely focused on very early stage uh, AI businesses. And uh, he has a, uh, a new fund that he's investing from and uh, is oftentimes the first check uh, into a new business. Uh, and uh, he's based here in the Silicon Valley and, and got a fantastic network of AI companies. And I look forward to his perspective on what the uh, opportunities and challenges are both for companies and investors in the market. Louis, I think he's, you're hired yeah. after that. He's going to hire totally. you for all his intros. Nice job. <laughs> so, so, Ben, you said something pretty interesting, which is that you said that you feel like since ChatGPT became a household term that it's easier to explain what your company does. Is that what you said? Um, not, but I'm happy to jump on this. Look, uh, you know, I think Walter, you know, wrote the paper early on on this, but it's kind of interesting, right? I, I built an AI company in 2000, and I would say some of the things we do today are not very different, but um, Gen AI is kind of, I, I like to call it a, a, a global consciousness moment, right? Nikolai, my co-founder, like to speak about another Sputnik moment. Uh, people around the world have kind of realized the, the capabilities and now everybody um, has, a, has maybe not a better understanding, but at least a, 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 as is touching the product and, and is able to see it when before that, frankly, it was embedded deep into the code and most people were using it without understanding it or even seeing it. Um, we can talk about some of the challenges that it brings along with it. Um, you know, we've been investing for a long time in, in AI. I think one of the first VCs in the U.S., um, so we always thought about narrow systems and human augmented intelligence is where value creation was really taking place. Um, we've been investing in large language model type technologies for, you know, um, seven plus years. So not news to us. We've been, you know, having companies using this sort of platform for a little while. But again, the, the value is still to be determined in my book in that, you know, we call the applied AI um, as our approach to investing. And I think it still stands true for Gen AI. I think people are still searching for product market fit for this Gen AI core technology. Um, and I think the context in which you apply it will be fundamentally different. Uh, health, as we just heard somebody mention, uh, or sales and marketing. I think what this technology can do, uh, should be trusted for, it, it will vary widely. So I'll pose there because I'm sure everybody has a point of view on that. Yeah. Anybody else want to, anybody else want to jump in on this? On generative AI, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to speak to it a bit. Uh, you mentioned health, and I, I think, you know, for us, we are working or we're, we're supporting users and customers who have been working with a lot of data in a high-tech environment, aka life sciences, drug discovery. We've seen some great applications of AI in this space. But when it comes to the operations of those organizations and actually optimizing and scaling up how they operate, that's really where they're still to be transformed. Um, and what's very interesting about our customer base is just that, is that they're starting to realize what kind of quote-unquote superpowers this sort of technology can give them in scaling up and making their, their operations more efficient, making their operations more data-driven, having more nuanced understanding of their customer base in a real-time basis. Uh, I wanted to add something what Benjamin said. Um, uh, ben, you just compared it with a Sputnik type of uh, event. I would say more of a brother's right first flight of AI <laughs> event. We're in the air, we're flying 300 yards. Uh, it's a great achievement on its own, especially in the mindset, less on the technology, more in the mindset, because we've been doing it for over four years. Uh, but what we see right now is that enterprises and customers they actually don't need that paper plane yet. 
they need Boeing 777 with all the whistles and bells and the cocktails to be served in the first class. So we are in this transition moment between, wow, we are in the air to like, okay, where is my ticket and where's, where's my seat in this plane? And many will like, crash and burn. Many will crash process. and burn in the process. <laughs> and you remember, remember this old saying, uh, which is partially joke, partially true, that at the dawn of aviation, CTOs were typically the test pilots. That's how the industry ran out of bad CTOs really quickly. <laughs> I like that. If I could add just one, I, I can't help but add this. Uh, so in the beginning of uh, the aviation race, um, it's interesting that you bring that up, Alex. There were all of these companies that were uh, racing to uh, build their first airplane. And we should take this lesson very, very seriously. The guys that got the most press, that had the most PhDs and all this, they never launched anything. It was two bicycle <laughs> mechanics, right? They were very much, you know, um, practical folks that ended up building the very first airplane and ended up like changing the field. So we are very early in this uh, AI race. And I think uh, uh, some people are already calling winners. It's, it's similar to uh, the airplane times. Like, oh, these guys are the best funded, have the most PhDs. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, as history has shown. Well, I, I, I think we like to think of DeepMind acquisition as a, you know, generative AGI acquisition, if you will, there's a world talent, 400 million maybe. And then you look at Mobileye at the time was a $12 billion acquisition, right? Difference between general AI and, and, and applied AI, right? When you're able to apply it in a context and a market and, and to give it all the bells and whistles. Product market fit is so key. I said recently, nobody buys your software because you have AI. That's actually correct. And uh, Ahmed, you have a very good point. The most well-funded companies in uh, Nadolna Aviation, actually funded by government and other organizations, failed. And two guys from a garage actually built it because they figured out how to do it safely. The problem is, my uh, fundamental problem is that all the test flights were taking, like, taking from a uh, high buildings or um, high level. And when the plane was crashing, and it's inevitable at the very beginning, people were killed and they actually were slowed down. What these guys in North Carolina figured out uh, is that to use sand dunes as a safe way to test the wing and find the right geometry so it's safe to fly. And they were iterating and iterating and iterating, and they were not putting the engine on the plane until they figure out how the wing should look like, geometry should look like. So that's I, actually what I see right now happening with uh, large organizations. They're doing a great job on kind of sparking the whole thing, but also open source community. These guys are testing and testing until they put the engine on. So it's, uh, it's incredible to see those uh, parallels between uh, those two technologies. But I think the alignment of, of incentives and risk reward were also a lot closer back then. You know, you fail, you die. I think <laughs> exactly. here, here people can try a bunch of things and they don't really are the recipient of the, by, the byproducts of what they have created. You can literally run out of engineers. Well, you know, we've got founders and, and investors from all over the world uh, in the uh, telling us where they're calling in from in the comment area. And, and one of the questions that I keep getting over and over and that I have when I meet new founders uh, in, in the business that I do is, is how do you take an idea and turn it into the first dollar of revenue? Because I think that's challenge number one is, you know, it's not because there's technology that there's a product. And each of you founders has, has found a way to turn your technology into a product. And then I'm going to, I'm going to follow up on that with, you know, how do you take it from the first dollar of revenue to the 10th dollar of revenue? And, and Alex, I think um, you know I'm going to start with you because your 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 name starts with an A. Um, tell me about <laughs> yeah, the first problem. sale you had for zero, and you know how you turned your technology into a product. Um, it's a great question, Louis. Uh, and actually, it's been talked about many times. Never never changed since then. It always starts with uh, beachhead market or the market, the small small enough market you can win over, and then move to another market. Um, and in our case, it was uh, legal. We went into uh, selling into legal because lawyers, they are knowledge workers and the no uh, amount of work, manual work they do and the, vo like, and the cost of time spent on non-billable stuff, you know that better than anyone else, is incredible. So it's about the ROI on the next day. So we started building AI products to help lawyers 
to get uh, to be more productive, do more with less and get ROI faster. And then from that, we started expanding to other uh, areas. But the biggest uh, advantage of that and growing the business from that niche market was number one, legal is referenceable. If it's good for Louis, it's good for everyone else in the top uh, 100 uh, of uh, Fortune 100 companies, right? Uh, because uh, legal firms, they have security standards, they are risk averse. And if you can sell to legal, you can sell to anyone. So the, the and of course, the data, incredible amount of data to train AI on and then move to another vertical. So I would say fundamentals never change. You start with a small market that can be referenceable to other verticals and expand and try to win it. Uh, Dee, tell us how you did it at Sorcero. Um, lots of things. Um, I definitely echo many of the things that Alex said. But for us, the other driver was this kind, the kind of content our users use, technical, unstructured, medical, often in a regulated environment, did not lend itself well to some of the tech available before. So, you know, as cognitive technology evolves onto itself, and particularly in our case, transformers were a big driver of why we chose to do what we do, uh, we, we started uh, addressing problems in life sciences. But I want to be very real. Our customers buy us because we supercharge their workflows. Uh, they're excited that there is AI under the hood and they're excited about what AI can do for them. And certainly ChatGPT has brought more people to our door. It's, you know, my commercial team tells me it's the best BD tool on earth. But <laughs> once they're over that excitement of, oh my God, this could be cool. The question is, how do I use it? Where does it fit in my workflow? Am I, is compliance going to kill me about it? So right. That's the many slips between cup and lip. And so we have been very, 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 very focused on actually solving the business challenge and then choosing where to apply AI to generate our first dollar in the eighth and the tenth and so forth. But that's really the key. Discover the business problem. Right. In my, uh, it's, it's one of the mantras that I preach to my Stanford students is, you know, great startups begin with a problem worth solving. Uh, and right now, I think, you know, generative AI is this cool thing that everybody's talking about. But, you know, to what extent are entrepreneurs putting it to use on problems worth solving? So Steph, Steph was a little bit freaked out by all of your aviation crash metaphors. Uh, and I'm just glad I'm not getting on a flight this afternoon after all that discussion. Uh, but Steph asked the question about, you know, when is it safe to fly AI? <laughs> I, I should know, Steph. Uh, thanks for the question, Steph. <laughs> I, I think Steph should not be uh, scared of uh, flying AI right now. It's just about what plane you're boarding. So there are companies that have been doing AI long time uh, before. I remember explaining to my clients what LLM is two years ago. Now everyone and their dog know what LLM is. Um, but uh, it actually about what... Uh, under the hood, and literally the uh, enterprise clients don't care if it's a black magic or AI. They just need ROI, and they need ROI as fast as possible, and also to be secure, dependable, scalable, and so on and so forth. So it's uh, there are a lot of companies that are just wrappers around ChatGPT. I would say that type of thing is not very much scalable, and we'll see AI bicycles, AI sandwiches, AI everything. <laughs> You know, what we, you know what we need, Alex? We need an AI juice machine that sits on oh my counter. I think there was uh, one that but... failed miserably. Was uh, <laughs> AI little juice uh, out of it? Um, Autopilot has been out there for a while. You've been flying with AI without looking at it or thinking about it. Right? Exactly. I think it's, it's already yeah. there. It's yeah. just not completely autonomous from takeoff yeah. and landing. But So or or Orly asks kind of a related question, which is just differentiation, you know, that um, suddenly everybody has AI in their in their tagline, right? <laughs> yeah. So what, you know, what, what is, what, what is the differentiation? You know, what makes one AI company more potentially successful than another? You know, obviously we've seen a lot and there's a lot of noise in the market. Um, look, like Alex said, if you are a wrapper around chat GPT, that might become an issue. I mean, we're, we're asking ourselves these questions, right? We think LLMs will be generalized and, and commoditized and there are going to be a lot of different flavors out there. Um, one of the big challenges we see right now with Gen AI is hallucination. So in context where hallucination is a fantastic thing, great. But if there are divergent models that will never converge and two people get different answers for same questions, I think we're a society built on truth uh, or trying to. Um, and, and that is a challenge. 
um, in, in the enterprise world for sure. If you're trying to create a new scenario for a movie, fantastic. If you're trying to create an original out, outreach for a prospect you don't know and you don't have too much to lose because your brand might be trash because you're sending the wrong type of email, that's okay. So it's empowering the small guys in ways that they are careless and carefree. Um, but for the bigger guys, there's different challenges. I think, um, like we heard earlier, they're expecting a fully flown, fully secured solution. And most people don't have that. We have a company that has worked on that for years, and we believe they have a great solution for the enterprise using these sort of models, but um, different conversation. When it comes to differentiation, we look, we always ask, what is the proprietary part of what you do? Do you have access to unique sets of data that others may not? Um, are you creating widgets that capture data that doesn't exist in the wild? Um, are you able to learn from these and create, you know, vertical applications, often narrower systems that are extremely good and better than anything you can find off the shelves? And we've seen our startup time and time over again, beating the big brands, you know, in very narrow situations because they have not only this narrow focus, but also this ability to build a solution to the problem, not just models for the sake of models or technology for the sake of technology. Um, and, and then we can talk about go-to-market, but since this is a panel that probably loves prediction, here's my first prediction. I'm saying we're going to see the first billion-dollar company with less than 10 employees in this decade um, because we not only go from a world of AI-first companies, which is what we've been focusing our time and investing in, to AI-first companies that are AI-enabled, and therefore, we'll be able to launch sales, marketing, manufacturing, recruiting, all these things with virtual agents. So I'd love to hear what Ahmed is working on. Um, and, and that's scary and disruptive. <laughs> Let's put it this way, but it's exciting too. Ahmed, you want to jump in? Yeah, certainly. Um, I guess cat's out of the bag there. So I have a digital clone of myself that's interacting on social media on my behalf right now. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> did talking to us right now? Yeah. Uh, so actually, we're working on meetings. We'll be able to do it very soon. Um, so yeah, I figured, how do you make money? Build things that make money. Sales, marketing, and customer service, things that cost me a lot of money. So uh, in my last company, I, I, I did sales myself. I built, I, I basically made my millions using AI, right? And uh, the first time I met Louis, I said, Louis, I'm a pretty crazy guy. <laughs> Right. I, I use machine learning to bootstrap a startup to millions in revenue, and I've never been able to figure out how to get a second salesperson to do what I do. Um, yeah, I was the only salesperson, and uh, being a being a computer geek, you know, I'm, I'm not that great with people. So I was like, I wish I could just clone myself. And then I was like, maybe I can. So I have a deep fake of my voice, uh, uh, and. Uh, we have uh, this engine called the goal-oriented conversation engine that's able to be a better SDR than anything else I've seen. I'm overbooked. Uh, if you look at my social media, if you look at our inbound, uh, we were at z uh, near zero revenue last year. Uh, and in less than six months, we've gone through our second million ARR. And it's, it's insane. Like just being in the driver's seat, watching this thing, it's like, damn, this is real. Yeah. Ahmed, I have one question. Are we talking to the real person right now or a digital clone? <laughs> reveal yourself, please. <laughs> the clone has much better answers. When you, when you can create a deep fake that'll participate in uh, you know, live stream panel discussions, then we'll be impressed. So let me ask you guys a question. So, what, so one of the criticisms of large language models is that it's kind of a brute force, guess the next word approach, right? So it's... It's not super, super elegant. Um, is this, I guess, I have two questions. One is, is that an accurate way to characterize it? And then second, you know, kind of where do we go from here? Mm. Walter, do you want to take that? <laughs> well, so, yes. Uh, we're just waiting until the NetChats commercial was finished. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, it's not so easy as... Uh, 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 as we say, because now people always, you know, like we made many mistakes in the past, you know, since Chomsky to now uh, and Perceptron and the different layers and the inability to understand, uh, uh, you know, reinitializing of, of LLMs. But uh, now that we are where we can basically, most LLMs have like a trillion words, um, which is an interesting also an interesting question. I, I think I know where they come from. <laughs> um, so lately I've been thinking a lot about uh, um, how we 
educate our children and how we educate our large language models. You know, when kids are like uh, uh, two to three years old, we already treat them as diffusers and transformers. You know, like uh, we already tell them like, uh, you know, draw something. So that's the diffuser, you know, like which colors are you using here? But these are not the right colors, you know, like we're prompting them into, at the same time, we are telling them like uh, write a house, you know, what is the next letter, you know, and then we try to, to make them, you know, and uh, have a sense of language because the, the mission of our precortex is to predict the next second. You know, it is the reduction of surprise. You know, otherwise we will not survive. And that's also what we tell our children. Look, look right, look left when you cross over, you know, stranger danger. You know, like we, we teach them all these things. Now, it is true that language model that, you know, uh, uh, birth was in both directions. Now the language model goes, you know, in a transformer to the, to the right. Predicts the next letter, but it also predicts the next word, and it also predicts the next sentence, and the next paragraph, and the next chapter. You know, and and this is all in context learning with some prompt engineering, which will now be because I hear you know like people people are obsessed with the no code. You don't you don't need to know anything anymore. You know, like uh, but that that will quickly change because we've been there before. You know. People are now already, you know, uh, doing function calls and uh, and injecting a lot of Python in their prompts. So, yeah. I, I I think a lot of parents are really believers in reinforced learning. Yeah. Though, <laughs> what uh, really resonates with Walter said. Sometimes I feel like my kids are neural networks trained on YouTube videos, uh, <laughs> but uh, and Netflix. Uh, but actually, what Walter touched is really interesting. Um, and, uh, of course, large language models, as we know them, and transformers uh, are critically important. But it's really commoditized uh, very much right now, Ben said before. Uh, and just wanted to kind of uh, touch on a different topic. We all talk about what the state is right now. We're not talking about what the future is. For example, we are working as part of our deep tech thing. We're working on action transformer. So what Walter is saying, predicting uh, what the next step for the user would be in the process of uh, performing their work. And that's a pretty incredible piece of um, a model we already have working. Uh, and of course, we, we, we can predict like one, two, three steps when the uh, user goes through the process to accomplish a business task. But in the future, it might be much more, which is in the very beginning of that process. But it's incredible. It, like if uh, people think that large language model feels like black magic, oh, you should have seen this kind of a things. And uh, there are so many possibilities opening up when you start combining those two things. And there might be third opportunities uh, showing up. So I think future for large language models is going to be not in a, like one large model rule at all, but the family of smaller models that are highly specialized that kind of a being connected by a larger model to do kind of a general reasoning, but also those specialized models like action transformers and others to actually provide much more than what we can do right now. The future is really, really looks interesting right now. If, if I may share, in 2017 at our conference, we had one of our advisors starting to map a path to EGI if and when we ever get there and do we want to get there, different conversation. But what was interesting about that, that roadmap to AGI is that we went from narrow, discrete AI systems, which was very much 2017, 18, 19, those narrow systems, to a vision of constellations of systems, of AI systems. And I think the coordination of these constellations of narrow AI systems and, and orchestrations of these systems, uh, which is very much what we're seeing with kind of baby AGI and, and auto GPT and other things, right? This is where we're going in, in coordinating discrete really strong models in different areas to start coordinating these things is where I think we're going to have a, a leap of, you know, a, an, an order of magnitude improvement in productivity. Um, and what the impact of that will be on society, again, I think you need to be uh, yeah, thoughtfully invested. I agree. Uh, I really like baby AGI, you know, and uh, so it's now uh, sort of called the auto GPT category, you know, like, uh, and, uh, 
I really like it, uh, although you had to have to handcraft these agents a little bit now, but it will be better. And now, certainly, with the introduction of function calls, it will be better. But, um, you know, these agents get stuck. These agents get stuck in, in decision-making or, like, they're waiting for somebody. But, you know, like, this is the same with students, with employees, with, uh, you know, with executives. You know, they get stuck. They wait for somebody else. Then you have to either give them a pep talk or threaten them in a way, you know. Like, <laughs> um, and and uh, the same thing we are now trying to do with these agents. But it's an interesting thing, you know, if you are now setting up a company and we had that, uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, Ben, you said about the tin wrapper, you know, uh, uh, the tin wrapper the tin around LLMs, is that really a company? Uh, well, probably it isn't, but it can be a, you know, it can be a lifestyle company, you know, like. Right, right, exactly. And we're seeing a fair amount of those. I mean, you grow to mil millions of dollars in revenue. Can you become a category defining company? That's much challenging, much more challenging. And uh, so, but, I just want to uh, quickly, hate to interrupt, but I just want to see whether Suman's audio is working now. Suman. Is it working? Perfect. Yay. <laughs> well, so I had about 20 minutes of prepared remarks. So I'm get in there now. Yeah. Uh, no, just, just to hit one point, I think uh, yeah. a, few of us, a few of us have seen these different paradigm shifts. So, you know, uh, first one for me was the internet, right? And there was a period of time where people were talking about the widgets. And then there was, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, people talking about the cloud. Um, and so I think we're in the same type of era. Like if you sort of stay away from talking about the macro things, I think uh, there's just a lot of experimentation that's happening in this broad AI space. And so very um, kind of top down, trying to predict wh what's going to work, what's going to be safe, what's going to um, kind of be the killer app. It's really hard. And I think you need to have this portfolio approach um, where, you know, through trial and error, you're fortunate to, to stumble into companies like Zero, right, or uh, Sorcero, and uh, and there, there's just uh, you know a couple of anecdotes. I, I think Alex had a social uh, media post where he had this like runaway suitcase. It was like an AI suitcase, and it was like runaway and like and and it, it, it's very true. It's it's I think through through trial and error we're going to find these like edge use cases where things don't work, but we are focusing on the ones that do work. And when these, you know, we discover these AI white spaces and we find these companies that are creating products that do work, I think the upside is so tremendous. And I think that's, that's the excitement, that's the enthusiasm that I think people are feeling. So, so I think, um, anyway, so that's, that's a bit of an anecdote on how I, I look at kind of the space right now and where we are and, and, um, and how, how a lot of the companies that we're seeing fit in. Actually, worth unfolding, Suman, you mentioned something that is an anecdote, but actually true story, number one. And second, it's a whole topic to unfold. So you mentioned this uh, suitcase uh, with AI technology and the tracker that the person who was in the airport um, um, I, um, wanted to be in a, in a luggage and uh, they forgot to load it in, into the airplane. So the guy who got into the airplane and the airplane was taking off and the suitcase uh, was trained to actually avoid obstacles, so it found its way to the tarmac, and as a video of the suitcase chasing the airplane, and that is funny, but actually it creates a lot of problems because that's that's potentially a um, situation where it can have a collision with the airplane or whatever. So AI is uh, at the stage where those safeguards and guardrails and everything should be in place because. As many people say, it's like putting the nuclear reactor in the middle of the city, pushing the button to see if it works. It might be, but if, what if it doesn't? So uh, Walter brought up example of baby AGI. How about chaos G GPT? Another example when uh, the same uh, free agent was trained to actually create chaos and uh, destroy things. And the first thing he it tried to find how to build a nuclear bomb. And when we couldn't, the second thing it did, it went to open the uh, Twitter account and start uh, tweeting the misinformation. So it's a uh, um, weapon of mass distraction. So there's so many components in this so worth un un unfolding as well. Yeah, I think what we're finding as well is because AI is so relevant now and because it's in everybody's homes, 
our customers who might not have ever used even barely software before are going to come to us and say, I want AI. They're not even asking for a solution. They want to buy AI. So in the enterprise software space, there's also a risk of salting the field because there'll always be just about enough people who will sell you AI, which will do nothing for you, but waste many tens, if not hundreds of million dollars in several years, and will also get a set of enterprise buyers really skeptical about this newfangled tech. And you do see that happening over and over again. I mean, poisoning the well, yeah. It's like Walter mentioned, I enjoyed the summer of AI, but let's remind ourselves they were winters and more than one. Correct. <laughs> and so, you know, just having that hyper narrow focus on what is really deliverable with what we have today, with safeguards, with measurements, with benchmarking, still remains extremely important. It's slow and it's patient, but it needs to be done. And at the end of the day, it still needs to fit into someone's workflow to change it and for them to keep buying it. They might buy it once because it's hype, but they're not going to keep buying it because if it doesn't do something for them. So sure, the first cut, but I'm, I think we're also really looking at what's the second cut of that going to be and they're going to, what's going to keep them coming back and it's unlikely to be the hype. So the part where talked about the uh, second cut and Many of you have kind of used the analogy of aviation crashes and nuclear bombs <laughs> to you know, refer to the fact that we're in a zone right now where we're not sure what works and what doesn't work. And then Suman said that, you know, for him as an investor, it's about taking the portfolio approach where you, you know, you got to spread your bets around because you don't know which one of these things will end up being successful. But Alex and, and Ahmed and Deponwata for those of us who are entrepreneurs, we don't have the advantage of being able to make, you know, have a portfolio. We, we, we need to go all in on something and build a company around it. <laughs> it's one of the many ways in which, the many ways in which VCs rule the world is that they have the advantage of distribution of risk. Yeah, I mean, you look at what's in front of you right now, I think it's a safe bet to just bet on a Bengali. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say no. <laughs> All right. It's the one I talked to there's before. There's the investment thesis. I just realized like, there's three Bengalis on NAI here. Imad Mushtaq, who's also Bengali, estimably in the future. I was like, wow. So I've been talking to more folks. Uh, like that Bengali, man. And this, for me, honestly, from, on a, from a human perspective, uh, my mom has never known what I do. You know, for all she knows, like I'm in the mob or something. She just... He goes, what do you do? There's no buildings with your name on it, you know, and you're not a doctor, so you're obviously not successful. Uh, so, <laughs> so this was the first time she understood what I was doing because it speaks Bangla. Uh, and I had a long conversation with uh, my mom and with certain aunties. And if there's any saving grace for AI, it is that our aunties will kill us if we don't build like the best AI that brings home A's. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm going back to what Walter said, uh, the vision of the future. I said, well, that's interesting. Maybe the, you know, everybody wants to know what the, the, the skills necessary for the future. I was like, well, you were to say that you were a therapist for a virtual agents because they have their breaks down, they have waiting, they have, they need their pet talks. <laughs> well, it's a very interesting, uh, at Stanford, we have Simulcraft Human Behavior where we put 25 agents in a, in a city called Smallville and we give them identities, and then we study them with 100 moderators uh, and students. And these agents have their uh, job, they have their wives, their families, they go to work, they come back, they reflect. And, and we can even get in there as an inner voice and uh, direct them or embody them uh, yeah, we have to start can, can you make a summer camp for my kid is 14 i'm sure he's gonna love this <laughs> <laughs> and uh you see the, uh, the i think for investors and for um entrepreneurs now everything is going extremely fast so as an entrepreneur you always have to go a little bit in the future not too much you know and try to time it but timing now is impossible because we are now, uh, you know, every, every hour something new appears. So what can you do so that you can set up a company that is future uh, powerful 
but that now also survives, you know, without being taken over as a sort of a feature inside OpenAI, you know. So I think uh, that, um, uh, and that's why I like maybe AGI, because most uh, CEOs, and I do, uh, you know, I, I talk to a, uh, uh, quite a number of, of boards now for the, the first 20 minutes of every board meeting is now AI, you know. <laughs> and um, so they, and let, let's take a smaller uh, a smaller public company, 2,000 people. Well, the CEOs probably now have already found out that they should have 10 teams of four people and fire all the rest. You know, because um, and and refactor their uh, their complete thinking, and and, and rethink. Uh, you know, like David Deutsch said, every point is now a boundary point. You know, like the frontier is everywhere in that company. You know, like uh, so. You know, like what you have to do, I I think is the following: um, you do something very far out in the future, and far out means a year. <laughs> Uh, you know, like the baby AGI or something like that. At the same time, in order to do baby AGI and in order to set that up, you need to know what in-context learning is, what LLMs are, you know, the complete orchestration platforms. Uh, so you can have clients from day one. Because I believe that nowadays, if you are working in AI and you don't have a, a client, and a client means a paying, a paying person, you know, not uh, uh, if you have a, a client and that makes you progress so much. First of all, you know, like you have a delivery to do, you talk about that uh, client and you learn from it, you keep the code base, you build on the code base and, and so you orchestrate your code base because you are going for baby HEI. So I think it's now bootstrapping is, you know, because the AIs are there and we can generate other agents than to do stuff and, and kick them in their ass when they are stuck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Louis, you're, you are not an IP attorney, but you have some partners who are IP attorneys. So, you know, how about this whole concern about, um, you know, the uh, large language models are basically sucking a bunch of other people's thoughts off the internet and repackaging them and spitting them out. And uh, so Orly asked the question about, you know, if I adopt, if I have a company and I adopt some of this technology, is there copyright risk? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's the subject of some um, pretty tough uh, litigation right now. And I think the best example of it is Getty Images, uh, which makes its pictures available online. Uh, but if you want to download them or save them or use them in a presentation, you've got to pay a, a fee. And uh, obviously, many of the um, uh, visual AI engines are are receiving these Getty images into their flow, and then they're and then they're creating thing. Uh, ge they're generating uh, AI uh, images on the other end uh, of the engine, which which then begs the question: if if these um, copyright protected images were the inputs into the AI engine, do they have some right into the outputs of the AI engine? And that is not a, a question of settled law. And, and uh, uh, I've been asked by many investors whether we would give a legal opinion uh, on, on a, the, the, the IP infringement characteristics of a particular uh, AI model. And um, they're, they're fascinating mandates uh, that you know, we examine on a case-by-case on a -case basis, Brett. I mean, I, I, I give you, we thought a lot about that as well, Louis, obviously. And, um, you know, one side, I mean, an interesting conversation, but we all went to school, we all read books. And if I try to write an essay inspiring myself from Victor Hugo or anyone else, uh, am I plagiar is that plagiarism? No. Can someone sue me for it? No. Um, now, where these images made available and shouldn't have been made available or were used in a way that was not permitted, that's a different conversation. Um, you know, I, and I think I can see a day where maybe OpenAI would be subpoenaed to list every single source, you know, they've used to train their models. Um, you know, we're not there, they'll fight it to death. But um, yeah, at some point, people that have a lot of money and feel their business is being disrupted will throw a lot of money at the problem because it's there, is there everything, right? Yeah, look at the, the solution, uh, you know, here the, the question is, where do 
all these trillion words come from? You know, and is there copyright on these words? But, uh, you know, the, uh, and it's basically the answer is very simple. It is samizdat. You know, like samizdat is lip gen and saiha. They are in Russia. You know, they, they copy everything. And, you know, all the students are using and all the academics are using them because why? You know, we write these articles, we do the research, and then uh, we, uh, we go through the examiners. And then when the article is published, we have to uh, pay a ridiculous amount to Elsevier. Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. So everyone is using these trillions of words in, in the Samizdat uh, databases of Libgen and, uh, and Sci-Hub. You know, it's a, it's a well-known secret. Uh, so that's where it comes from. So, so Sudipto asked an interesting question, which I, I think the essence of his question is, if you're, if you're a company who wants to incorporate more AI uh, into your offerings, if you're, especially if you're a non-tech company, do you need to build an internal team around this or, uh, or use uh, external AI providers? I think is the essence of his question. So um, many of our, our, our target market have fairly sizable AI slash data science teams internally. Some of them were set up years ago with the intention of building tools, bots, other things that would address their business needs. What most of them discovered is they're not product companies. So yes, certainly, you know, every once in a while there's a vaguely usable model, there's a chatbot that does a thing, but it definitely does not map to the amount of investment and the pace of development even a tiny little software company could come up with because they are a product company, right? So that is certainly becoming a realization in the market. I would say what we talk to our customers about is you should have folks on your side who understand technology and who have the ability to evaluate and frankly ask the right questions, you know, whether it's security usability ROI question but maybe not try and make the build decision for most things. There needs to be a marriage of technical understanding with business need understanding on the buying side. But we, we generally see that if somebody thinks that they're going to build their own LLM and actually a, a potential customer told us that we're thinking about building our own LLM. We barely knew how to, how to respond that, we generally say, no, uh, actually use the product. <laughs> uh, you know, like Walter, we spent some time obviously in, in advising boards and, and talking to very large corporations about what's happening in the marketplace and with AI. And, and, and the analogy I like to use for people, because, you know, we heard someone talk about and, and cloud and all this big wave of disruption. I think back to what you were saying, Walter. I don't know if we can build companies that will last hundreds of years anymore. I don't know if that's where the future is going to be like, but the, the peak of the market and the waves are higher each and every time because they build on top of each other and you can monetize them in a period of time as well. It's like the movie industry. The only reason it was taking so long to monetize the movie is because of the rights of the contracts, not because we could launch everywhere on every screen across the, the planet. And so do you think that analogy maybe will create a lot more wealth faster and then you move on to something else? I don't know about the cycles which a lot of LPs would love, right? They, they hate the fact that VCs is a 10 plus year business cycle. Um, but, but the analogy I make for corporations and for them to understand the disruption they're facing is this. If you made a lamp, if you manufacture a lamp for hundreds of years, that's how you've made your core business, you've manufactured lamps. And all of a sudden you have to learn to sell it online. Great, you have adapted and you manage. It's the same lamp. Your supply chain didn't change, the way you manufacture didn't change. Now you, and mobile came along, you use mobile, you learn to sell on mobile versus internet. Then you use VR because it was cool. You can visualize your lamp before you even buy it. Great. Again, didn't disrupt the core business. But now you need to manufacture a smart lamp. Well, what does that mean? What that means you need to have people in-house that understand AI. You need to actually maybe change your business model to give the lamp for free and, and save money on the energy and split that with the user. You need to rethink your entire core business. And that could be worth for a product or a service. So to answer you know, the question earlier, you need to think about that. You need, what does your core product and service look like when it's AI embedded, AI smart, right? Because again, that's what's going to disrupt you. 
right? And that takes in-house capability as well as adopting innovation faster for everything else that's not core to what you do. And just to double click on that really quick, a great book. There's a lot of AI books out there now, but a, a book that predated the whole LLM and kind of chat GPT emerging. It's called uh, Competing in the Age of AI by uh, Marco Ian City and Graham Lacani, HBS professors. Um, and I think it's a, it's a lays out a pretty good framework for how, you know, if you're an AI company or not AI company, how you should kind of think about that. It touches on a number of points that Ben mentioned. So I definitely call that out. Um, ben and, and Walter and Suman, you've each uh, invested in a, in a pretty broad swath of AI companies in, in the market. And uh, I think we have a, an awesome panel of pan entrepreneurs who've actually taken a technology and brought it to market and gotten to way, way over uh, a million, in many cases, many millions of dollars of annual recurring revenue. Um, but, but there are a lot of AI companies out there that, that might be um, hyped. And, and, and that might be in the market looking for capital, who've raised lots of capital and burned lots of capital. What do you see as the big challenge for those companies to, to, to succeed and, and make it to the next level? And, and, and what are you seeing in the market as the, kind of the next big obstacle for AI companies to overcome? Well, I think it's, uh, it's always the same thing. Eh? Like uh, you get uh, your, uh, uh, so, you know, VCs like us and like, uh, you know, we give early, you know, early seat money and uh, we give them money and then we, we wait a year. And in that year, we want uh, a proof of concept. We want a product and we want clients and we want to see growth. And uh, entrepreneurs take that money and they are convinced that they are going to be there at the end of that year. But then they got lost in traffic, you know, like in, uh, you know, like they're, they're, uh, you know, you know, especially start to use all these fancy words from finance and, and super voting rights. And by the man, by the end of the year, then they don't have uh, a product or they don't have a client or they don't have any growth. And, and then they come back and they say, can you help us fire our co-founders? <laughs> so it's, it hasn't changed. It's been for 30 years like that. You know, it's not with AI that this changes. No, I, I mean, I go back to the same thing. I tell founders, look, as the, there's no shortcut in life. You need to create value. So you can raise $20 million over a weekend on $80 million pre if you're well-known founders that investors know and believe you're going to build the next big thing. But that gives you just a bit longer runway to create a value that's going to be 2x that. And so... You, in the end, again, you need to deliver and create value. If not, you're going to fail miserably. I mean, you know, I still have LPs that ask me, oh, you know, can we invest in OpenAI? I'm just like, no, that was a foundation to begin with. By the way, that's more of an R&D organization. A lot of that money is, is on string shoe budget. Uh, but for them, it doesn't care. They don't care because guess what? Microsoft makes all the money on the cloud. This is a distraction. They're selling picks and shovels to people to process in the cloud and make money there, right? So you got to look behind you know, the image and, and perceptions. The opportunities in the market are now all the large corporations um, that normally, you know, a corporation is large enough, has money enough to hire people to do that internally. The problem is that all the people they want to hire want to set up their own company, you know, and, and go. We love that as VCs. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and that's uh, what has made Silicon Valley great. Guys, we are just about we're just about out of time, but I'd, I'd love to quickly go around and and hear from each of you a particular use case that you're excited about. You know the um, you know some some use case that you think really is going to be profoundly valuable that AI generative AI will will uh, will provide. And Suman, we'll start with you since uh, you got cut off at the beginning. Give us an example. Well, you know, I'm a shameless promoter of, of the companies that I invested in. So Perfect. one, I'm, I'm obviously excited about zero systems. I think gen, uh, generative AI and broader AI applications within the enterprise based on proprietary data that companies own and want to manage. I think that's a huge white space greenfield. Um, and the company's been amazing in its growth. So that's one. The second is is a company I'm with, uh, Ben in. It's a co company called Hayden AI, and I think that one's tackling computer computer vision use cases that we didn't really talk a lot about in this in this chat. 
But I think once you have that data, there's a lot of interesting things you can do with it in the city. And uh, that's one that nobody would have thought of uh, probably in the front end and is evolving amazingly well. So I think those are two. And then a third that I'm interested in is in the, in the financial vertical. So if you're t- you think about companies like uh, Bloomberg and all the data they have, I'll take that analogy with ChatGPT and all the finance information that's available. I'm on the lookout for an interesting company in that space. Um, and so I, I, I wanted one, I gave you three. Excellent. Thank you. Under-promising and over-delivering. That's what it's all about. Dupanwada, how about you? What do you what do you what what use case do you see that you're super excited about? So there are, you know, we, we use AI services across many of our product features. There are three that we're seeing is really exciting. One is supporting the generation of plain language summaries or patient lay summaries, which usually accompany a clinical trial report or a poster. So making sure this medical information, which is out there, which is mandatory, is more accessible, both to patient advocacy groups and physicians. Really, really critical, much more scalable, doable with some of the generative AI features. We also are supporting our customers in uh, in understanding or finding indications on next best action. So I've processed all these insights from all of my data, from all of my data sources. What is it telling me about how do I handle dosage better? Or what is it telling me about a trend emerging in an evidence gap with a physician? So we see these two places as very, very exciting within our product portfolio. Awesome, Alex. Actually, there is not just one case I'm excited about, uh, especially when talking about AI, but the pace at which those use cases appear. Uh, And uh, recently, we just discovered that one of our uh, largest clients, it's uh, one of the largest insurance companies in the United States, they they were applying our solution, one of our AI apps that we've built on top of our engine, to one of the business cases of theirs, and the savings are $3 billion a year. just blew my mind away. And we didn't. We, we never thought that's possible, but that's how those use cases work. And this uh, th- this happens during uh, during the process of discovering use cases and building more use cases. So I think there will be a lot more potential to be discovered across the whole industry and many other clients as well to see how all of them going to be disrupted. There's no one use case that will dominate everything. It's so many of them that it will be hard to choose which one is much more important. Okay, Ahmed. I think it's an extremely exciting time to be alive, especially if you're a geek. Uh, This is like imagining what computers would be before computers came about. I think computing fundamentally will change as you can speak to a computer in a much more natural way, which is where like we're leaning into the synthetic agents so that you can mentally model another person, right, as your interface. So that's what we're really thinking. that the large language models afford us is this ability to speak naturally to a computer. There's tons of computer resources, and I think it's going to be transformational at the level of the industrial revolution. Nice. Walter, you told us about baby AGI. What else? I think for me, it's all about uh, media and entertainment. Media uh, and entertainment. Yeah. And, you're, and you're in Malibu right now, right, Walter? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, this were, you know, this... Uh, you know, in, in I'm not talking about the zip code, but in Hollywood, in in the sense that uh, um, you know, media and entertainment industry is still an industry where people do business by phone. They text and they send you DocuSign. You know, like uh, there is no real computer science optimization there. So think about scouting. You know, like uh, think about scouting for locations. Think about uh, props. You know, this can all be software. You know, like uh, I want to see a movie in the future that I can prompt. And I say like, okay, instead of uh, Tom Cruise, put me in there. And, uh, you know, and uh, and uh, this will all be possible. The composability of, musics and of, uh, of music and of movies are, you know, a couple of years away. In two years from now, actually, the Grammys just announced the minimis you know, they're new. Uh, so AIs um, uh, can only win if 20% of humans collaborate with them. Hmm. Okay. It's a ready player one. Here we come. <laughs> All right. Benjamin, you get the last <laughs> word on this. Uh, what well, thanks. Um, I had the benefit of listening to everybody <laughs> else, but 
Here's, here's where I say, I think one, one area that I'm very passionate about is, is empower people to reach their full potential, which is, I believe, what we try to do as venture capitalists with founders. And to do that, you need to give them access to knowledge. And so acquisition of knowledge is interesting and important as human, as society. And so we invested seven years ago in the founder of in the core technology behind Alexa, and he built a new company called Prion. And this is not a Gen AI per se. They are using Gen AI elements and large language models to synthesize and summarize information accurately. And so I think you need to start building solutions with the intent to be trustworthy, to be transparent, uh, to be, you know, remove as much as many biases as you can, because that's the world we want to see. And when you take this kind of technology and you map it to any sort of information that an enterprise has and able to deliver knowledge in, in, in an instant, I'm not saying delivering link to information that you need to read and assimilate. I'm talking about synthesizing knowledge and assimilating faster with source to a truth. I think that is going to just unleash billions of dollars in, in productivity. And that's really exciting to be part Very of. Nice. Louis, take us home. Um, I, I'm just so excited uh, and motivated by this conversation, uh, Brett. And thank you so much for bringing together uh, four rock star founders and and uh, uh, three rock star investors uh, who are bringing you know the, the, this to reality. And and uh, I couldn't be more optimistic, Brett. No matter what happens in the world, when I'm surrounded uh, by people like the folks that we brought together today. So uh, thanks for doing it, Brett. Over to you. I totally agree. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I think we could go on for hours, um, but I'm sure all of you have better things to do. Uh, Louis and I, all we have to do is go out to lunch, have some tacos, and we're good. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate it. See you soon. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or people you think I should interview, send me an email at brett@fourthly.com. And don't forget to rate and share this show. It really helps. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.